Hello, Philip. Hello, Rachel. How are you? I'm good, thanks. You? I'm all right. Bit nervous, though, as you currently look and sound a little bit smugger than I'm used to. What is going on? I've had a very amusing thing happen this week, and I'm very excited to tell you about it. Am I going to want to hear this? Well, you're going to hear it anyway. That's what this show is all about. So what happened was, on Friday, I was shopping in a very Jewish area of North London. Well, that is news to everybody. (laughs) Rachel shops in the Jewish parts of North London. i got to keep the brand up. Anyway, I was going around the shop, and I'd seen a woman kind of glanced at me a few times and then she came up to me and she said I just had to come over to you and say Beigle (laughs) (laughs) wow I mean that is some weird stalking but I approve it's hilarious and she told me she's also from Essex and how they rejoice in her households they listen every week to the show and whenever I say Beigle they're like yes that's the right way to say it I thought maybe I should suggest we get tattoos together that say like Beigle till we die So what you're basically saying is that life in Essex is so dull that people literally sit around the wireless as a family (laughs) waiting for a moment they can rejoice because they've heard the word Beigle. I think it says a lot more about our listeners than it does about the word. (laughs) Philip, when we put out press about this, we said it was all about representation. And I think representing where you come from and your roots is very important. So you can bagel as much as you want, but uh, bagel till I die. I think it's lovely. I'm I'm really pleased that people are coming up to you. Thank you for doing that. It would be great if if anyone from Team Bagel wants to reach out to me, then you will receive a very warm welcome. From Philip. (laughs) Actually, funny enough, we joined like loads of different Facebook groups when we were setting this up and mm. I'm still a member of a few Jewish food groups because sometimes it makes me think about different things to talk about when we do the food bits and there was an argument on there about not bagels and bagels but bialis and platzels because where I grew up we had platzels which are I guess more like a cross between a bagel and a roll but they would often have like a dip with onion in the middle or olives in the middle you're looking very bewildered only because and I'm sorry to interrupt the story and obviously Listeners at home won't be able to see this, but we are being heckled by, what are they, swans? I think those are geese. Geese. I'm at Centre Parks as we record this, and... Just, can you hear that noise? No. There's basically geese attacking my cabin. Anti-Semitic geese. Who'd have thunk it? Is that what you think? They're anti-Semitic geese. <laughs> <laughs> I feel we've lost the thread of your Bialis thing. I imagine that that's what's brought the geese over. They heard the sound of bread and they thought, that's it for us. Maybe. You know the joke about why seagulls fly over the sea? I do know the joke, but I'll allow you to say the punchline. Because if they flew over the bay, they'd be bagels. If they flew over the bay, can you just ask the geese whether it's bagel or bagel? See what they say. They goose stepped away. I mean, I imagine <laughs> they do that all the time. <laughs> So basically what's happened is we've tried to have a really deep and meaningful conversation about Jewish language and words and the wildlife of centre parts. We've been like, just get on with the show. So maybe that's what we should do. Just just say, here's this week's show. This episode of Jude Talking To Me was recorded under lockdown conditions. Hello, I'm Rachel Krieger. And I'm Philip Simon. We are two Jewish comedians. I'm Orthodox, so when I was 12, I had a bat mitzvah so I could stand in front of my community and tell them that as a Jewish adult, I was committed to keeping the 613 commandments. And I'm Reform, so when I was 13, I had a bar mitzvah so I could slow dance with Rebecca Goldberg. This show is the audio equivalent of the internet. Free, accessible and full of information that's bound to lead to an argument until someone brings up the Holocaust. In each episode, we chat to two of our favourite Jews about their lives and experiences growing up and how much Jewishness plays a part. 
Are they Tevye the Milkman or, sorry, your dad's the Milkman? Welcome to Jew Talking to Me. Let's introduce our guests. First up is Times journalist and a regular voice on the news quiz, Hugo Rifkin. Hello. 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 Hi, Hugo. How are you? I'm not bad at all. Thanks for having me. Very well. Thanks for being here. Hugo, regular listeners to the podcast know that we always like to find out how our guests self-define as Jews. So you already know that I'm Orthodox and Philip's Reform, but what kind of a Jew are you? I'm a terrible Jew. Um, (laughs) I'm I'm, I'm the sort of Jew who presents a radio show on Saturday mornings and is married to a German. Look, I'm, I'm also, though, I'm an Edinburgh Jew, which is a very precise sort of Jew. I always think Scottish Jews are generally quite different from English Jews, but even in Scottish Jews, you've got divisions. Your Glasgow Jews are kind more like Catholic Jews, whereas your Edinburgh Jews are more like Presbyterian Jews. So I'm very much a Presbyterian Jew. There's only one synagogue in Edinburgh. So what that means, while being a sort of non-practicing Presbyterian Jew, the synagogue at which I'm non-practicing is very much an Orthodox one. So I'm a sort of non-practicing, drifted, married out Orthodox Jew. Does that help? <laughs> yes. Absolutely. <laughs> right. That was super clear. Definitely. And, and now that we know exactly the type of Jew that you are, what's the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? Only this afternoon in the garden of my cousin in law Cheryl and my cousin David, we had an argument about bagels. We were arguing about the difference between the, uh, the the New York bagel, the sausage joined together, and the London bagel, the bun with the thumb hole in it. And I'm very much the fan of the London bagel, the bun with the thumb hole, whereas they were more fans of the of the joined together sausage. And as I was in their garden and they were providing the bagels, I may have been ruder than I intended to be by dissing their bagels. Never want to diss someone's bagels. It's been a long lockdown, you know, you get, you get your joy where you can. But I'm also delighted to hear you say bagel and not bagel, which will definitely be a feature of the show. <laughs> Later on. <laughs> An incorrect feature. Our next guest is a former MP who's now the managing director of a global communications company. It's Luciana Berger. Hello, Rachel and Philip. <laughs> Hello, Hello, Luciana. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. How exciting. Delighted you're excited to be here. Thank you very much for coming. Uh, Luciana, what kind of Jew are you? Oh, I like to describe myself as an eclectic, enthusiastic Jew. Both my parents grew up in United households, but then they made the decision. And in fact, if I can disclose, Philip and I, we grew up in the same synagogue and I had a bat mitzvah in the same shul. Right, uh, yes. But then I had a kind of very confused like youth movement experience, combining a both B'nai B'rith youth organization, uh, which is kind of united with reform, RSY, reform synagogue youth. My mum had grown up in FZY, so I dabbled a bit in that as well. My husband is from Liverpool and grew up United. So we um, had a United Wedding and we now live in London and we are members of a Masorti Shore. So you've tried a bit of everything, it sounds like. Yeah, <laughs> but very enthusiastic with it all. You know, I'm just happy to be involved in it in all different ways. Excellent. And Luciana, what is the most Jewish thing that's happened to you recently? We're kind of low on, low on experience at the moment, obviously coming out of COVID. But my husband works in the music industry and he looks after a number of different artists, by the way, of his job. And um, has had lots of meetings with his artists in our home. And we've been doing lots of testing to make sure that um, everyone's okay to have these meetings and he had uh, one of his clients who is a top performing artist in our country had a number one just a few weeks ago I, I won't disclose who it was and we invited him round I've also said you know don't come hungry Sunday brunch time expect to have some bagels and some salmon and cream cheese and whatnot so he came round and he said oh you know but I, I already picked up a few things and we had we keep a kosher home and um he got his like can of coke and he got his ham and cheese sandwich when uh, everybody knows a Jewish home should 
should have been Diet Coke. Unbelievable. <laughs> 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 yeah, so that was a bit tricky. Didn't touch any like plates or anything, but we handled it very delicately. We obviously wanted to welcome everyone into our home. So all your governmental training was <laughs> really just leading to that one moment. And I often got that moniker of, you know, being the diplomat. So yeah. I don't think any politician has ever suffered by eating a sandwich full of pig, have they? <laughs> <laughs> I did an event at my synagogue uh, for Simchat Torah. I used to run every year a kind of comedy and entertainment thing for all the kids because the service goes on for like about a week and a half. And someone who actually Philip knows as well, so I'm not going to say who, but a comedian was invited to our synagogue and he was very lovely. And I said to him, we'll provide lunch. And he said, oh, don't worry, don't worry. I'm sorted. And then I said, okay, let me get you a cup of tea. And I came back and he was eating a ham sandwich in our synagogue. (laughs) A while ago in Edinburgh. I am allowed to tell this story. I think I'm, I think it's okay to tell the story. I went to see a famous British Jew show when he was doing it in Edinburgh. I happened to be in Edinburgh and I went along with a friend to see him. I know a famous British Jew. It's a friend of mine. And afterwards, we were trying to find somewhere to have a drink, and we went back to the hotel. That a famous British Jew was staying in, where there was a wedding. The wedding reception we're walking through was happening, in the, and to get to the bar, we had to walk through it, and it was pretty late because we'd been to another bar before we were there. Forgive me, we were trying to see if we could eat in the restaurant, and so it was that point in you get in a lot of weddings, not Jewish weddings, where someone comes around with a big basket full of bacon sandwiches for everyone who's about to go home. <laughs> <laughs> At which point, a famous British Jew swipes a bacon sandwich and stands there munching it. And I was saying, I think we probably shouldn't be stealing bacon sandwiches from these people's weddings. We just happen to be passing through. And he's like, no one will notice. And I was like, what do you mean no one will notice? You're a famous British Jew. Getting the wedding, eating a bacon sandwich. This is so amazingly noticeable. But um, we, we got away with it. Well, I hope we can have that story in the show. Because if we have to bleep out the name of that story, and Luciana and Rachel have now both told stories where they're not prepared to mention the name of the person, I'm the only one that has no connection to anyone of interest, apparently. We have to get a famous British Jew on to defend himself. <laughs> he can't. I should have taken a photo. It's lovely the conversation already flowing, but we always like to start the show really by checking in with our guests during these turbulent times and asking, what's the matter, Bubbler? So, Hugo, what's going on with you at the moment? The big stress of the week is we just bought a car. We bought a car this morning on the internet, which we haven't oh. seen. And I'm thinking, is that fine? Like when you sort of, you know, buy, I don't know, some plugs on Amazon, but we didn't buy some plugs. We bought a hybrid car. And that's kind of, but, well, I think, is it good? Why shouldn't we buy cars online in the way that we buy everything else online? There's basic rules about buying a car on one of the that before you buy the car you drive the car you at least see the car and just this sort of vague promise that in exchange for many thousands of pounds someone's going to drive up outside my house in about five days with a car and we're part exchanging with the other car so we've got to sort of hope that the state of our car is at least roughly similar to the state we told them that it was <laughs> this is just, it just seems like a wildly stressful thing to do and yet we sort of did it this morning over breakfast on a whim but at least you didn't have to go through the rigmarole of going to the forecourt and having to queue i mean i had to do this last year and it was just like doing it in covid compliant ways was just so painful and you like sat down you have to wait and you do the mask and then you fill out like hours and hours and hours of paperwork and we did that last week we just didn't buy a car we ended up just buying one madly on the internet instead because they didn't phone us back for three years and we're like well screw them we'll just go online i'm sure it's fine presumably yeah. it was a car website it's not like it's a local right. butcher but they happen to have a couple of cars you know <laughs> it was it was a website that does very much exist to sell cars a lot of times when people buy stuff on ebay and internet sites like that it turns out to be a doll's house size so now i'm just picturing a matchbox toy car arriving <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's it so if they turn up with a sort of, you know, multiple thousand pound matchbox car, then I will feel pretty foolish. How are they delivering yeah. it? I assume they're driving it. But, um, <laughs> that, that would be the logical choice when transporting a car. Maybe not, though. Maybe they don't. Maybe they put it on the back of a truck. And they've got to take ours away as well. Maybe it'll be in like a really massive Amazon box 
like an Amazon box <laughs> that's, that's five times the size of even the car. And you're like, what the hell's in here? Pulling out all the packaging. The, Are you going to get one of it. those cards that said, we tried to deliver it, but you weren't <laughs> but you were out. Yeah. We've left with your neighbor. <laughs> it's behind the bin. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, assume, I assume it's going to arrive on a truck, right? They wouldn't drive it here because we've bought it based on the certain mileage. God, it's a minefield. But it's the last untapped like market online. Like, first of all, it was like DVDs when that was a thing and books. Uh, and then it became like increasing like groceries and other things. And then mm-hmm. we bought like large electrical items. And they're currently less than one percent of us buy a car online. Mm-hmm. But in lockdown, of- that, that almost one percent has increased massively because like how else are you supposed to buy cars? You can like take it back if you don't like it. You've got like a week, I think, to take it back. But I mean, but then you've got to go so, down the post office. Go, you've got to get the post office. Thing with your car. Have to get your little card. Yeah. So that that's my stress anyway. I brilliant. think it would be more stressful to go down to the forecourt and have to pretend you know anything about cars instead of like I just want a blue. One. It is blue. You got the right one then. It's yeah. fine. There we go. No, nothing to worry about. When does it arrive? It arrives, I think, on Thursday. We may need an email update and then we'll drop in a reveal to the audience <laughs> for how the car went. Luciana, how about you? What's the matter, Bubbler? My issue is also driving related i've done quite a bit of local driving throughout lockdown because i have two very small children that need to be transported every day to their childcare. but i've noticed in particular over the course of the past week not only how many more cars are on the road but also the amount of road rage i mean it's extraordinary mm. and you know what it's normally like a you know 10 minute journey first of all it's taking me almost twice as long and that's not fun but also like people honking and shouting and let me tell you i'm a very good driver but you know i just took an extra moment to turn right from a main road and someone's like effing and blinding out their window lots of people honking not at me but people around them and it's i don't know where this where this has come from or, or why it's presenting but um it's making the normally fine journey an unpleasant experience that's all people who've accidentally bought cars on the internet and are driving around <laughs> fury going i barely fit in this it's the size of a matchbox you know it's not even blue i think it's because everyone's been in their house so it's everyone's now like a 17 year old who's just passed their test and has been able to drive off people i've seen that have indulged in this behavior have not been younger drivers they've been people like around my age or older and just it's just that made it such like an unpleasant place to be i just i just yeah it's just i think we've all all lost the knack of living in cities right because Mm. we've kind of we've spent a you know a year and a half and it's been like i mean it's been awful but it's also been for the most part unless you go to a park when it's all sort of like mud and insane dogs and sort of teeming with people but generally speaking you can't do anything you normally do in the city but the sort of driving and getting around has been deserted and so it's um it's been sort of much easier to do whereas now it's the exact opposite of that just sort of being thrust back into the insane london of it all. As a Jewish mother, whenever I see anyone, I wonder, have you eaten yet? And on this show, we obviously love discussing food and drink. A couple of years ago, Hugo, you were invited to give the toast to the lassies at a Jewish Burns Night Supper, and I was invited to give the response. And not only did you give me my first ever taste of whiskey that night, but in fact, <laughs> um, the first conversation we ever probably had was where we were sitting next to each other during dinner, and you gently tapped me on the shoulder and you said... I'm not quite sure how to say this, but the tail of your headscarf is actually in your Cullen skink suit. <laughs> <laughs> but we're interested to hear your own Jewish food stories. Hugo, what about you? Other than fishing my headscarf tails out of Cullen skink, what's your most interesting Jewish food memory? See, I struggle with this because in Edinburgh, we didn't have a, when I was a kid, we didn't, there wasn't a, a, a Jewish bakery or a Jewish butcher. And there wasn't a big enough community. There weren't even, there weren't even teenage Jews I wasn't related to. You know, it was, um, it was um, it, well, there were a few, but not, not very 
very many. We were the sort of non-kosher wing of a otherwise observant family, I would say. When people came around, firstly, they didn't eat. But when they did come around, there was a lot of like, for God's sake, don't let them see the fridge. You know, like, like my, my mum would be like, oh, we're going out tonight, there's a pizza in the fridge. And I'd be like, what kind of pizza? And she was like, never you mind what kind of pizza. We'll talk about what kind of pizza later. Um, <laughs> so so that, that was all quite fraught. A lot of my early kind of sort of food, Jewish food memories are sort of fraught with the, with the extent to which we were obliged to deceive the rest of our family. That being said, I mean, a lot of my aunts were fantastic cooks. I always remember every Rosh Hashanah, we'd go to um, my Uncle Philip and Auntie Leela, and Leela would make this fantastic chicken soup where she'd make uh, chicken soup with canadles, but she'd also make it with uh, with sort of unborn eggs. Do you know what I mean? Yes. Unborn chicken, yeah, oh. which, I, which I can't have had in maybe 30 years. I don't even know where you get where or if you can get They're probably illegal. Under, well, they were illegal, <laughs> I'm sure, under some kind of EU directive. You know, you surely can't eat an unborn chicken egg these days. But she'd put them in the soup, and they were absolutely gorgeous. And so I, I always kind of... In a way, it's a bad thing because every chicken soup I've made since then, and I'm, I'm not a, I'm not a terrible cook these days, but every chicken soup I've ever made has suffered from the lack of my Auntie Leela's unborn chicken eggs, which I, I always wish were in there. Luciana, what about you? Any favourite Jewish food memories? I haven't been able to listen to every episode of your podcast so far. So if I... Nor is my mum, don't worry. My mum has. <laughs> <laughs> uh, forgive me if someone else has already shared this similar memory, but it's one that was very formative throughout my youth at different moments. And that is Carmeli. Uh, I grew up in uh, Wembley Park, and I have many fond memories of in my in my in my early teens and throughout my teens of first uh, congregating outside Carmelis at uh, the ripe old age of thirteen, fourteen, when we didn't go out out yet, but going out to Golders Green and standing outside Carmelis was going out. And then uh, latterly, when I used to go clubbing um, or going out out somewhere in town um, on a Saturday night, um, coming back past Carmelis, stopping for my bureka, um or like really awful pizza or smoke some cream cheese bagel uh, or bagel like at three four five o'clock in the morning seeing various people that I knew that for me just was my kind of go-to spot it's a lot of people's fond memories like not necessarily just on the show but when you chat to them I'm not from that area I'm from Essex and we had our own local bakery but the few times I went to Carmeli's to Beck as I believe it was called at the time I didn't really understand <laughs> what the point was also stand in front of the bakery and not eating that much if you're going to be there surely it was for continuous eating didn't get it in early teens it was a place to go not necessarily to buy anything because you know we were like low on pocket money at the time. You know, I wasn't able to have like a, a weekend job, but certainly it's because I'd already eaten three meals during the day and it was in the middle of the night. So I required a fourth, obviously. And, and again, it's just like, it was, you know, it's added like an additional social dimension and layer to the evening's festivities, whatever they might have been. So, you know, catching up with someone that you went to school with or someone you're on tour with or someone who's, you know, mum's second cousins, brother's cousin, whatever, you know, just just added some some more social engagement because it hadn't been enough for what have I done already that night. <laughs> it was a great place to be and I don't think anyone has mentioned it on the show specifically about loitering at Carmelis uh, <laughs> actually uh, just for fairness we should point out that other teenage loitering spots are also available uh, but I, I think that's a really good example of a, a memory that's not just about the food but it's about the social interaction that went with it and whether it was becking or biking I guess as uh, <laughs> the Bible would be you know upset people but I think that's a lovely answer would you divide into little groups depending on whether you were eating a Bible with smoked salmon a Bible with cream cheese like how do people <laughs> divide themselves no it was, just, it was just 
it was like a mass congregation, you know, at the ripe old age of 13, 14, and there's like kind of interconnectivity. And I mean, there wasn't much food going on. It was just like a spot that, that people would, would swarm to. And then, yeah, you'd meet different people. It's interesting, like when you went in the middle of the night to actually buy and eat some food, you know, who would go to get their bagels ready for Sunday morning? Um, who would go to the, the bagel section, the pre-prepared because they wanted to eat that? Those would go to the hot food section. You know, I mentioned the barekas in particular, or people that would wait for them to bring out the trays which would come through the night um but they often only had the potato left that was like the worst breaker you know you're waiting for the spinach you're waiting for the, the, the that kind of very tart cheese I don't, I don't know what kind of cheese it was but i was always in that normally in the hot food corner but interesting Is that where the cool kids hung out no just people that wanted like something nice to eat <laughs> <laughs> the whole thing of going and hanging out at a, at a bagel shop at sort of like three o'clock in the morning i sort of dabbled with in east london when i when i moved to london in my 20s and it did seem quite exciting I mean, I sort of always felt there were more exciting things to do at three o'clock in the morning in London than necessarily the bagel shop. But maybe I'm, maybe I'm misunderstanding the culture here. It was a final conclusion of your evening. So you would have like exhausted the visit to the bar or visit to the club. Mm-hmm. And then it was on your journey home. It was like an adjunct. It was like a, it was an additional <laughs> element yeah. uh, on your journey home to make sure that also you obviously had to eat something because... So it's basically, it's the, it's the sort of, it's the the London Jewish version of the of the, of the chippy, right? Yeah, the kebab. Yeah. And also, yeah. don't forget this was before the day of Facebook and WhatsApp groups. So this is how you found out what everyone else had been up to. Yeah. So it was a it was a social catch up. <laughs> but you can't expect people to know what you're up to. Oi, what could be more Jewish than interrupting our own show to remind you that back episodes of the podcast are available on all the usual platforms, as well as our own website, jewtalkingtome.com. And don't forget to like, share, subscribe, and leave a lovely review. It's what your mother would want. This week, we're asking you to tell us where the Jewish kids used to hang out when you were a teenager and what drew everyone to that spot. Tell us all about it on social media using the hashtag Becking at Jew Talking Without the G. And now, back to the show. Hugo, I'm about to blow your mind. Go on. Because I know where you can get those little tiny Go eggs. on. Where? I mean, um, don't, don't, don't say inside to... a chicken, because I, that, that <laughs> I can figure out. No, there is a butcher near me that yeah. still gets them. And I'm not going to say it out loud, because obviously I don't want the black market to dry up. So I'm going <laughs> I don't know to... if they are illegal, but maybe. <laughs> we'll, we'll, I think we'll there talk. was an EU reason yeah. why they stopped being commonly available. Probably just like salmonella. Think... It's nothing important, right? No, they are very special. And actually, when we had Anthony Horowitz, the writer on the show, that was also his like big thing. That was his favorite memory growing up. But I mean, he mentioned it a lot. And then when I told him that I could get him a lead to have them, it was honestly it was the most exciting thing I think he's heard in years. So Um, so I'm probably preempting this. This would be better off later in the show. But I believe we have Anthony Horowitz's fireplace. What? (laughs) I'm told he used to live on this street a few houses down from where we are. And that when he moved out or maybe when he was renovating, our fireplace was once his fireplace. A neighbour told me that. Well, if you reach inside very carefully, you might find (laughs) some of those eggs. (laughs) We'll talk. This is very exciting news. I remember those eggs. I haven't also had them for like 30 years. Childhood memory. Like a lot of elements of Jewish food and probably all cultural food in, in different cultures, they're the sort of things that if you then try and describe them to someone who isn't of your culture it just all sounds gross you know yeah. if you start telling I mean, them about pipics and eggs in fairness though the reason why it sounds gross is that it's gross yeah. <laughs> is know, it more you know. gross than like calves foot jelly no that is also gross but you know two grosses don't make an ungross i was at, at sort of a very un-jewish boarding school i was the only jew at my school and after our gcse's 
we were sent off to a kind of army camp, like cadet corps army camp, which I was again the only. It, there's a lot of being the only Jew in kind of posh Scotland, any Scotland really. And there was one point during that army camp where we were shown how to sort of sounds sounds mad, but I swear it's true to sort of kill and dismember a chicken, so we, so we could survive in the wild with with chickens. And the mad sergeant major who was showing us how to do it reached inside the carcass of a chicken and ate an unborn egg fresh from the warm bloody chicken. <sighs> I did not, at that point, miss my Auntie Leader's soup that much. Uh, but since then, <laughs> the appeal has come back. Wow. It was a kind of it was a kind of sort of Rambo move. How did I your mean, parents I... react to that? That's basically what they sent me to school for. <laughs> <laughs> Hugo, your story about the Outward Bounds trip reminds me that I once went on a school trip years ago. I say years ago, like it's a surprise. I was at school years ago. But I, went, I went on a school trip years ago to France and it was by the sea and the teachers one day were eating oysters and I had no clue that oysters weren't kosher. So when they said to everyone who'd like to try an oyster, I was like, yeah, okay, I, I'll try an oyster. And I did. And it just tasted like lumpy salt. So I wasn't that interested. But I mentioned it to my parents when I got home and they complained to the school. The, the teachers, I think, got into a fair amount of trouble for feeding a Jewish boy uh, <laughs> these oysters. That was a brogus that started up yeah. with my family to the school, and I was wondering whether it was something similar. I'm going to ask you now about bruguses. Good segue, Philip. Thank you very much. <laughs> I, I could see you wondering where it was going, but there was definitely a plan. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you about bruguses because uh, we talk about it in terms of conversations we've already had today with bagel or bagel, but I think there must be family bruguses that you have in your own lives or ones you've heard of that you could share with us for the show. Hugo. To go back to what we're talking about, not, not based on that, because this was, this was a school that my parents sent me to. And I did go to church twice a week at it. So the, so the mere eating of an oyster would have not been such a big deal. No. I, I sort of struggle with this because having talked before about the sort of intense Presbyterian nature of Scottish Jews, we don't really do feuds. We're very practical people. We're not like you flighty English Jews with all your, your big cars <laughs> and your and your and your expansive hand movements. You know, we're we're a very we're a very modest people. As a as an uncle of mine used to put it, you don't have a feud with somebody because if you do, then you need to stop being rude to them, you know, because if you stop <laughs> if you stop speaking, the insults have to stop. So I, I was speaking to my cousin today saying, Can you think of any family? feuds and he, he could vaguely remember there was a time when when one uncle stole another uncle's regular seat in the synagogue and the first uncle was so cross he moved to israel but i probably shouldn't talk about that because then other people will hear and then i'll be in a feud for mentioning the feud <laughs> and, it, and it will just become the sort of cycle of infinite regression and you'll have to have all kinds of tenuously connected rifkins on your podcast and it will just go mad <laughs> i think that's such a very specific jewish brigus thing to take offense at something small like someone sitting in your seat and emigrate as a result like that's your response yes. to exaggerate it beyond all proportion. <laughs> I mean, in fairness, in Edinburgh, this, this, you are talking about sort of six people who don't speak to the other six people. Was this a surely in Edinburgh then that the, that brogus happened? I assume it must have been because there only is one. But there and, must um, be more than six seats available. Yeah, everyone had everyone has their own seats, right? You don't you, you don't just sit you don't just sit wherever. At least you didn't just sit wherever. People people have been sitting in the same seats for decades. I, I actually don't know. It's been so long since I've been there, but it's perfectly possible I still have a seat in the synagogue in Edinburgh. I doubt I do because I certainly don't pay for it. But there used to be one with my name on it. Oh, How would you check. react to know that? someone's been sitting in it all this time <laughs> god knows i'm not so um, you, know, you um, can tell that people have their own seat in uh, that show and in a lot of similar age mm. shows because even if there's only like 15 people there for the service they don't sit together like you oh, think no. naturally in a kind of carmelis gathering way that people would all just come and sit in a clump for a social no absolutely not no, no they no, sit no. miles apart in the seat they've sat in for, for 400 years and there's only sort of like sort of 40 people there but if someone if someone's going to sit in the wrong place to have a conversation with someone you, you know about it you know you see every new face yeah all that I did always wonder why when you go to shul and there's not many people there everyone's so dotted around and now I realise it's this territorial nature of the 
this is my seat and it's been my seat for generations that so this is where i sit even though there's a pillar in the way and i can't see anything <laughs> this is where i sit well that it's a, it's a pretty good brogus I, I hope it doesn't wake up any feuds between, <laughs> but, but you come back on the show and tell us if they do if it, if it does yeah if it does wake up any feuds i don't actually know which uncle it was it's just a memory that this happened to one uncle or, an, or another uncle it might not have even been my uncle it might have been somebody else's uncle <laughs> but it's a good story it's a very good story thank you luciana how about you any broguses you want to share with us i really 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 also similarly to hugo wrap my brains to even think of any like i've asked family members and what i've been missing but there's no kind of contemporaneous feuds that came to anyone's mind really but certainly for some of my members of my family of, a, of an older generation some of whom are no longer with us today so i, I won't name which family member this was connected to and there was a feud involved in kiddish rota and for the uninitiated kiddish rota is a very very well uh, intentioned uh, predominantly women who very kindly put their name on the rota to help prepare all the goodies that come out after the end of the service to enjoy kiddish it's like a drink and a snack and you know depending on, on what the functions on the day it might be like a real full kiddish which would involve like bagels and extra bits and sometimes it's a very modest one which is just like you know the bowl of crisps and nuts and a few pastries and the um, broigus was around the organization of pastries on the tray uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know at the end of the day these are people like volunteering of their time to you know make sure they attend this service come backstage before the end of the service to help you know put out all the cups and the serviettes and the plates and the trays of the foods and um, so everyone can enjoy themselves and um, there's a, a real brogus that ensued about like how the pastry should be arranged on the tray and uh, whether it should be like in lines or whether it should be like in you know, rounds and people got some someone very strong willed who believed it should be a certain way and someone else strong willed that believed it should be another way and descended into a very significant brogus over an extended period of time. I mean I don't think it will come as a surprise to anyone who listens to this show that even a religious service on a Saturday morning for Sabbath <laughs> ends with some kind of refreshments <laughs> <laughs> which is what Kiddish is all about. And it is predominantly women, even I think in a lot of progressive synagogues, the women who kind of organise it, a bit like Women's Institute, and they have their rules and their routines, don't they? Also going back years, years that's how we've always done it. We've always had crisps in that shape bowl. That's how we've always done it. We've always put the drinks on. That's how we've all... I've, I've been invited to join ladies' guilds who do their Kiddish rota before, and I've always felt that I'm not really the ladies' guild material because I'd always like put the crisps in the wrong bowl and just try and convince people <laughs> to live with it. I'm also not ladies guild material i feel so don't, don't feel <laughs> I, I bad tried about that. to be i tried <laughs> to be. when i was younger i would go to shore with my grandma quite often because she and her husband had founded the community we were very involved and going to shore with her was quite a big thing and i'd get there early enough to help with the kiddish and it was the first time i ever realized that initiative was not appreciated <laughs> <laughs> because they, they say i'll oh, put put these biscuits out on the tray you think that's simple enough do whatever design you want to do and then you present it to them expecting praise and you just get the worst reaction because that is not how it's been done for 40 years and who are you to come in here with your eight-year-old ways trying to to shake things up a bit you bohemian it's the doilies that get to me <laughs> doilies play a massive part in kiddush rotors and i'm not really sure why in 2000 and i don't know what year it is anymore because of the pandemic 2020 one let's just say 21 why not where does one even buy a doily from anymore i mean i haven't seen one in a shop i mean where's the, like the go-to shul like shop to buy the doilies for the kiddish you can't buy them on anymore because the shuls bought them all 100 <laughs> years ago they're still working through 
through their collection. They sell them the same place as the chicken eggs. That's where, that's where you get them. <laughs> I'm going to get actually, to Amazon and see if I can buy a doily. You just have to be careful it isn't doll's house size. Very, very small doily, yeah. There was that tin of biscuits. Do you remember the tin of biscuits where the, the biscuits were actually in their own individual paper doily Casing. type? Yeah, that, those are the biscuits I got in trouble for. I put them in on the tray in their casing still. Oof, are you crazy? Idiot. Obviously, that meant someone would have three biscuits. <laughs> Who do you think you are giving away three biscuits per person? So, yeah, the doily thing. Even our producer Russell shook his head when you said you did that. They're just the disgust. <laughs> I've learned something tonight because I had no idea that, that the word doily is spelt D-O-Y-L-E-Y. No. I thought it was, yeah. thought it was it? D-O-I-L-E-Y. Maybe that's why you couldn't find them all this time. If I scroll down, it turns out that people posting these items online spell them in both ways. But there's actually packages that have it like printed on the package as D-O-Y-L-E-Y and others that have it D-O-Y-L-E-Y. I mean, this is, this is just like a... We're having fun and we're learning. <laughs> yeah. Well, one of the best kiddishes or kiddushim that I've been to the past few years was actually in Edinburgh Shul, which was for Hugo's Auntie Hilary and Uncle Arnold's golden wedding, where I happened to be there during the fringe and we had all kinds of extra fancy stuff. There was smoked salmon, there were cakes, there was all kinds of deliciousness. That's actually the first time I properly saw Hugo across a crowded room. <laughs> How long? How long's golden? I'm trying to think if it would have just been golden or more than that. It's is sixty golden, years. It, sixty no, years. Golden's fifty. Is it fifty? Uh, yeah. It's fifty years. It must have been fifty years. I mean, because they're, they're they're both in their mid seventies, so it would be it couldn't be any longer than that. It was it was a long time. They've been married a long time. It was it was, it was wonderful. That wasn't it? It was really it was, lovely, was and really, also because yeah. the warmth of the community towards your auntie and uncle was really lovely. Yes. It was a pleasure to be part of that. Uh, they're a sort of fantastic backbone of the Edinburgh community. My uncle is an optician. Well, he was an optician in, in Morningside in Edinburgh, and his. Uh, his kind of, I don't know what you'd call it, his patch as an optician, his community as an optician, pretty much didn't completely, but overlapped like a sort of major Venn diagram. My, when my father was an MP in Edinburgh with his constituency, and my father always used to tell a story about his canvassers going to ring doorbells and say, I've come here from Mr. Rifkind. And they would go, yes, well, I've had these glasses a few years, and it's probably about time I got some <laughs> new ones. They're like, no, no, the other one, his brother. Yeah. I think it'd be great to turn up and say, I'm here for Mr. Rifkind's patch, and then just and the optician gives you a patch. <laughs> So Rachel, you hung out with Hugo at Kiddish and Luciana and I obviously met growing up at what was then the Middlesex New Synagogue. So we have all these connections between the four of us. But if you think about the idea of six degrees of can't eat bacon, other than us, who is your most interesting personal Jewish connection? Luciana. So quite a lot of people know about my political Jewish connection. So it comes up quite a lot. My great uncle was Manny Shinwell, who served as a member of parliament and member of the House of Lords. And I talk about him often. What people don't know is that I have two very strong Jewish musical connections. Both relate to my grandparents. So my grandmother's first cousin's daughter was Lindsay DePaul. And oh, wow. if you know who that is, she represented our country, Eurovision, grew up with Lindsay. She was very close to my mum. And on my dad's side, my grandfather's first cousin's granddaughter we get that right yes we do that again yes my grandfather's first cousin's granddaughter was amy winehouse so very mm-hmm. musical connections yeah and my brother lives in nashville so he's he, and my mum writes music so i come from a very musical family and my husband likes the music as well have you never been tempted to do anything musical yourself i mean phil may recall when i performed at the synagogue charity musical with my family and we were labeled family von trapp uh, but apart from that no. it was an epic evening of talent yeah. i think that was that actually my very first attempt at stand-up comedy and it was 
yeah, coming on to 30 years before my second attempt. That's, that, that's how well it went. Uh, it was a very entertaining evening. But Amy Winehouse, I've even heard of her. So, <laughs> can't believe you've not heard of Lindsay DePaul. Well, I have now. But your husband's connection with the music industry as well, we're not going to ask you to name names, obviously, but was that something that kind of drew you to that life of the, the musical world? Well, I met him at a music event. So he and I met in Liverpool. I was on a panel and he was there as a local music manager to hear, not really from me, but from others and from the Musicians Union and from UK Music about kind of the impact of this act on local bands and on local clubs. Um, so that's that's where we met. So yeah, I mean, I, I've grown up in and around music. It's very much been part of my life. I wasn't surprised to meet him there and delighted that I can vicariously live through him and the music that he's connected to on a daily basis. Fabulous. And uh, Hugo, what about you? Who's your most interesting personal Jewish connection? Well, weirdly, mine is, mine is music-based as well uh, because my, let me get this right, I think my th- third cousin is Mark Ronson uh, who was who was of course Amy White Amy Winehouse's producer so we, we, we got a link there his mother and Dexter Jones is my father's second cousin and she is of course the woman for whom the song I want to know what love is by foreigner was written because his stepfather was a man called Mick Jones from foreigner so whenever I hear that song I'm about that's about family alas although I am related to Mark I can't pretend I know him very well we don't hang out no, we met once at a GQ party that's true that's definitely the most glamorous wing of my family but that, did you that say that quickly to preempt us from going um, sorry, do you mind giving us his contact yeah, can we details? Reach <laughs> no, what's, what's fantastic about it is we've got a very, very big family. There's many, many wings of the Rifkin clan. And one of my cousins does one of these sort of round robins that goes out to everybody when, when interesting things have happened. And I remember one a few years back and it was like, it had a long list of stuff. And it was like, Mazeltov to Nechaman Baruch on the birth of a daughter and Mazeltov to Nelly on a bat mitzvah and Mazeltov to Elaine for being 100 years old and Mazeltov to Mark for winning a Golden Globe for Best Original Song for Star is Born. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Those round robin letters, or now they're emails, they always have a real air of competition about them. Now, I've only got one family member who puts them out, and I always feel like she just wants somebody to write back and like compete with it, but nobody <laughs> does. But really, Golden Globe is they, mm. they probably set the bar quite high with that one. Yeah, absolutely. Not a lot of competition for that. I mean, within the family, not in, within the world, as I, I gather quite a lot. <laughs> and is it one of those things that people need to submit the things they've done to be proud of i would assume that he didn't you know i would assume that he wasn't like as soon as he'd won his 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 golden globe for best original song he was immediately sort of you know texting our our cousin david in edgeware but you never know am i too late has it gone to print (laughs) am i too late to know people's favorite Jewish or Yiddish expressions. So uh, in a segment we've now called Duolingo, let's hear yours. Luciana. Well, I actually didn't check the origins of this Duolingo. So I, I believe it's Hebrew, modern day Hebrew, but it might have some Yiddish strains, who knows. But when I go out for a meal, when that's allowed, I don't like to like just land on one choice. So my best culinary experience would always be one where you have sharing plates and you can try lots of things. But in the absence of that kind of dining experience, um, I always insist with my other half that we should share uh, what it is that we're choosing and, and we have like some kind of ritual episode that goes on to like land on what our choices will be but we gravitate towards the Hebrew expression chetzi chetzi so you always do like a half half to decide what it is that we're going to eat That's I lovely. love that phrase I, I love it it's used so often whenever you're going to see family in Israel it's used for lots of things not just sharing chetzi chetzi how, how are you feeling about it oh chetzi chetzi I love that I think it means half half I mean that's, that, that's, that's, yeah. what, that's what 
Yeah. Neither here nor there. Yeah. You've got a lovely positive way of looking at it. I mean, I insist on it. It's not a choice for my husband. <laughs> so I was just going to say that people often have quite strong feelings about the sharing of food. Oh, yeah, it's obligatory in my household. It's not, yeah. it's not an opt-in. Excellent. Hugo, do you have a favourite Jewish or Yiddish expression? Yeah, so there's this, there's a fantastic book written by uh, David Dykus, who was a sort of uh, Edinburgh-born uh, professor of literature. And uh, he wrote this book called Two Worlds, which is about growing up in the Edinburgh Jewish community in the very early 20th century, the teens and 20s of the, of the 20th century. And there's a passage in it where he talks about some of the old men in the synagogue lounging around. And one of them is a, is a man called Motti Rifkind in this book, who I believe was my great, great uncle. And Motti had come over from Lithuania with his brother, who was my great-grandfather, and he spoke this sort of mixture of kind of old-fashioned Yiddish and Scots. And so there's some fantastic Scots-Yiddish expressions that have survived. The best of which is Motti's phrase, Och ve vota boni baby, which comes up often and what's become the, the, the Edinburgh traditional sort of Rabbi Burns nights. Basically, Scots-Yiddish is, is, is my sort of my, my mother tongue that I never learned to speak. That's beautiful. Mm. Och ve, I love that. I'm going to send Absolutely. it to everyone I know in Scotland. <laughs> Well, that's nearly all we've got time for, but how will our audience know what you're up to if you never call, you don't write? Normally, we'd allocate 20 seconds to do this, but for you, 30. Where can our audience find out more about you? Hugo? Well, so this is the worst possible thing to plug on a Jewish podcast. But I present a radio show on Times Radio from 10 till 1 every Saturday. So, so do, do tune in. Obviously, if you can't tune in, it's on demand as well. But you can also catch up and read me in the Times whenever. Generally, Tuesdays and Saturdays. And you can also follow me on at Hugo Rifkind on Twitter. Thank you very much. And Luciana, how about you? You can also, on occasion, find me on Times Radio of an evening at around 10.30 reviewing the papers do that quite a lot but if you're not listening to the radio at that time you can follow me on social media I'm on Instagram at Luciana Berger on Twitter at Luciana Berger as well and I also have my own podcast uh, it's a relatively new one and um, myself and Rebecca Simon we are twins from a different mother born same day same year we are talking about approaching our 40th and also the experience predominantly of women throughout lockdown and um, lots of different types of women lots of different experiences what women have been doing at this time so it's a podcast predominantly for women but men are very much invited and welcome to it's called the close quarters podcast and you can follow it on instagram uh, at the close quarters podcast and on twitter also at close podcast and men very much are invited but don't try and rearrange the biscuits because they've uh, <laughs> been there for 50 years well i've absolutely loved this and from now on i'll always think of luciana as the jew who would prefer her bagels served with a doily and hugo as the jew who would sell his own car for a baby chicken egg <laughs> and as my grandmother used to say when she wanted to end my telephone calls you must have better things to do than talk to me and you must have better things to do than talk to us which is a good thing as sadly we've come to the end of this week's show we'd like to thank our guests luciana berger and hugo rifkind follow them on social media follow us on social media at you talk without the G. Don't forget to find you talking to me wherever you get your podcasts. Make sure to subscribe, like and share with everyone you know. And join us next time on You Talking To Me. You Talking To Me was hosted by me, Philip Simon. And me, Rachel Krieger. It was produced by Russell Balkin. want to run by you guys very quickly how Jewishness has impacted your careers. Yeah, Luciana, has Jewishness impacted your career at all? I'm trying to think. <laughs> <laughs> Not really sure. Maybe just on the fringes, yeah.